a young man looks happily at his beautiful bride and says, I worship the ground she walks on. The ring ceremony in the 1552 Book of Common Prayer for Anglican Weddings says, With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship. Worship is worthship. In worship we express the worth of the one we worship. We honor and value the person above ourselves, and in so doing, we find our deepest happiness in the one we worship. So it is in marriage. So it is with God. John Piper, in his classic book, Desiring God, used the analogy of marriage to explain our worship of God. Let's say I take my wife out for dinner on our anniversary, and she asks, why are you doing this? If I say, I have to because it's my duty as a husband, I dishonor her. I devalue her with that answer. If I say, it's my joy, nothing makes me happier than to be with you. Now I honor her. I worship her with my happiness. Piper paraphrases the Westminster Catechism as the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is worship. Worship aligns the heart of the worshiper with the heart of the one worshipped. Worship changes us. It transforms us precisely because it is not about us. Worship is about him. In Nehemiah 12, we arrive at the great worship service celebrating the completion of the walls of Jerusalem. It took the people 52 days to rebuild the walls, according to Nehemiah 6.15. Now we are at least a few months later in chapter 12. Why did they wait? Why not dedicate the walls in chapter 6? The reason is simple. Nehemiah did not come just to rebuild the walls. He came to renew a nation. That's why all the events of chapters 7 through 12 had to occur before they could have a dedication service for the walls. The people needed to repent and experience God's restoring grace in their lives before they could worship God as they should. They needed to renew their covenant with God before they could worship God. Repentance and covenant renewal are like the wedding vows that precede the marriage. They needed a spiritual transformation in their minds before they could dedicate their works to God. And it is the same in our lives today. When we are works-oriented, when we are performance-oriented, then we celebrate our achievements for God, like the walls of Jerusalem. But, my friends, that is a sorry substitute for worship. Worship doesn't celebrate our accomplishments. Worship celebrates God's greatness. And in the process, the worship of God changes us. Renewal is all about putting God in his rightful place. Life is not about us. Life is about him. Worship 
purifies the worshiper. We must never dedicate our works until we worship our God, because our works are done for his worship. As we worship, we are purified. We are changed, transformed by his grace. We make life about him, not about us. Let's take a look in Nehemiah chapter 12 at verses 27 to 30. Let's look at our purifying preparation, first of all. Our purifying preparation. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba and Asmapheth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. The term dedication is the Hebrew word Hanukkah. The Jews celebrate Hanukkah in December as the festival of lights each year. But the modern celebration of Hanukkah does not commemorate the rebuilding of the walls under Nehemiah. The modern celebration of Hanukkah celebrates the dedication of the temple in 165 B.C., Judas Maccabeus recaptured the temple from the Seleucid dynasty that year, and it is specifically that event that is celebrated by Jews as Hanukkah. A dedication, a Hanukkah, or consecration, was an offering of their work to God. It was a celebration like the Festival of Lights is a celebration. Worship doesn't celebrate our accomplishments but offers them to God for his approval. In order to properly offer their work to God in Nehemiah's day, they needed some preparation. So Nehemiah gathered the Levites from around the region to Jerusalem so they could prepare for the dedication service. The singers and musicians of ancient Israel were usually Levites trained as musicians. These musicians were the worship leaders of the nation. But it took great preparation for them to lead the worship. These musicians, of course, needed to practice first. The Israelites used a variety of musical instruments as well as their voices. The cymbals were favorite instruments because they could make a loud noise to the Lord. Harps were instruments with varying lengths of strings, while the lyres were instruments with strings that were all the same length, but of different di diameters or tensions. They also had great vocal choirs which needed to be prepared. But it was not enough to prepare musically. That's important. But in fact, the emphasis of these verses was not on musical preparation, but on heart preparation, because worship is a spiritual exercise. They began by purifying themselves. We know that they purified themselves in the following manner. First, they would bathe and be sprinkled with holy water, 
Next, they would shave their entire bodies with a razor and wash their clothes. Then they would publicly present themselves, and the priests would lay hands on them, setting them apart for the Lord's service of worship, according to Numbers chapter 8. Next, the people were purified in preparation for worship. They, too, would have bathed themselves and washed their clothes. They likely, the people, the crowds, likely abstained from sexual intercourse as well, according to Exodus 19, 14, and 15. Then the gates and the walls were purified by killing a bird as a sacrifice and sprinkling its blood along with running water on the walls. A live bird was then dipped in the blood and set free to fly away, according to Leviticus fourteen forty-eight to 53 Now, we are not under the law to prepare for worship in the same way as the Israelites. But I want you to notice how seriously they took their preparation for worship. Why did God care about such minute details in their preparation? For example, his instructions for the tabernacle included how big the rings were to be that held the curtains up. Why? Because God knows something about us. God knows that paying attention to details helps us remember how important our worship for God is and how we should prepare carefully to worship him. We should not take a a casual, cavalier attitude toward worship where we just show up and plop into our seats like we were late for a movie at the cinema. Our worship leaders in church are not here to entertain us. They are not working to put on a good show or wow us with their special effects. If that is all worship is, friends, we might as well stay home. It's meaningless to God. All of us need to prepare ourselves through prayer and reflection to lead others in worship. Do you take time before the worship service to focus on God and make sure what you do is about him and not about you? What about the rest of us in the congregation? How do we get ready for worship? We too must prepare to worship God, just like the Israelites. It's not about the worship experience. It is about a heart for God. Real worship begins long before we arrive at the church building. I would challenge you to take some time on Saturday night or Sunday morning to prep your hearts to worship God. Spend time in prayer. Reflect on his word. Express your love for him and confess any sin in your heart. Repentance leads to adoration. Confession prepares us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now let's look secondly at our purifying praise, chapter 12, verses 31 to 43, our purifying praise. Verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Drop down to verse 38. 
The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. Drop down to verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar, from way away. The people formed two great choirs with an audience of one, God. The first choir went counterclockwise in a procession around the city on the top of the wall. Ezra was part of this first choir. The second choir proceeded clockwise around the wall, singing and playing as they walked. Nehemiah was part of the second choir. And the two choirs met between the water gate and the gate of the guard, where they entered the temple complex together. They joined choirs to sing to God and lead the nation in the worship of God. God alone was the audience for the singing of the entire nation. The culmination of this great music is found in verse 43. The entire congregation rejoiced with the choirs and praised God together. Five times in verse 43, this one verse, the word for joy or rejoice is used. Notice that they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. They literally enjoyed God together. Now that is worship, my friends, to enjoy God together. Robert Weber tells about growing up in a small village in Africa. His parents were missionaries in a town of about a thousand people. The Christians in that village had an interesting tradition on Christmas Sunday morning. They would rise early on Christmas Sunday morning to climb Mount Belly. Then just as the sun rose, the people would scramble around and pick the beautiful wildflowers that covered the mountain. Then they would form a grand procession and march single file down the mountain singing Christmas carols. The procession always ended up at the mud hut of the missionaries, where the people would form a circle around the house and have a song fest. They would sing with great enthusiasm around the house, waving their flowers and swaying rhythmically with the music. It was a time of great celebration of God, of great joy, of great happiness for believers. Music is one of the greatest mediums for worship available to humanity. Music has been called God's second greatest gift to humanity after Jesus Christ himself. Even a secular artist like Don McLean, in his famous song American Pie, sang, And Satan laughed with delight the day the music died. But music, for music's sake, must never be tolerated in the worship service. Music is not an end in itself. Worship music exists for the purpose of focusing our hearts on God. 
Musicians and vocalists are worship leaders. The people in the congregation are the performers, and God is the audience of all worship. And my friends, it takes all kinds of music. There is nothing sacred about a certain musical form. God enjoys all of our musical forms as long as they are devoted to exalting him. You may like Bach, and someone else might like rock. You may like Casting Crowns, and someone else likes Rend Collective. You may like Lauren Daigle, and someone else likes Handel's Messiah. It's not the form of worship, but the heart of worship that matters. I saw a cartoon where a conductor is leading a great choir, and he turns to the soloist and says, Brother Smith, one does not say get down in the middle of the hallelujah chorus. That's probably good advice. It doesn't fit the music. But that does not mean that contemporary music is wrong. Toby Mack, in the number one Christian song for 2021, entitled Help is on the Way, sang these words. I heard your heart, I see your pain. Out in the dark, out in the rain. Feel so alone, feel so afraid. I heard you pray in Jesus' name. It may be midnight or midday, never early, never late. He gonna stand by what he claimed, lived enough life to say, help is on the way. Help is on the way. I think the Lord is pleased with that reminder in worship for, for all of us. Praising God purifies our souls when our songs remind us where we can look for help in times of trouble. Singing together is one of the greatest avenues of worship and one of the greatest testimonies of our faith in Jesus Christ. So sing away, my friends. Sing it loud. Sing it clear. Sing it with gusto. Let the world wonder why we sing so with so much enthusiasm. Maybe they will begin to ask some questions and see what they are missing. Third, Let's look at our purifying offerings. Chapter 12, verses 44 to 47. Our purifying offerings. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served for they perform the worship of their God and the service of purification. It is an act of worship to give our resources to the Lord. The Israelites gave their contribu contributions, first fruits and tithes, to the Lord. Our material offerings are our response to God for his gifts to us. We give back what he gives to us. We have so many ways to give today. We can give online. We can give in boxes by the church doors. We can give in the offering plates of many churches. Just like in music, the way we give is not as important as the heart behind our gifts. Whenever and however we give, we should give with gladness for all God has given to us. It is our offerings to him. 
Nehemiah appointed priests and Levites to collect the money and take care of it. Verse 44 tells us that the people rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. Literally, the Hebrew term for served means standing. When they served in ministry, they were standing before the Lord. So ushers who collect the offerings in the church worship service are standing before the Lord. People who work in mission agencies and Christian ministries to handle the offerings of God's people are standing before the Lord. They are serving God as good stewards of the offerings of the people. These are forms of worship, as verse 45 makes clear. Service is worship. When you serve, you stand before God. Did you know that in the first three centuries following the death of Christ, a Christian was often called an offerer, an offerer. Christians were offering their lives to God in service. In fact, a person who had been excommunicated from the church because of unrepentant sin was labeled as one who was forbidden to offer, forbidden to offer. You can't offer anymore. You see, my friends, making an offering to God is a great privilege for us. Service to God is a privilege, not a right or even merely a duty. It should not be something we should take lightly. Offerings of money to a church are not merely a fundraising campaign. Giving to God is a sacred act of worship, whether what we give is dollars or time or energy or talents. These acts are sacred not because of any particular value which those coins or that activity or function have, but because we consecrated all of them to the Lord. They are his. They are for him. I would suggest a practice that I have followed throughout my life. Whenever you give to the Lord, whether your gifts are money or service, talk to God in the privacy of your heart. Tell him you give this to him as the best that you can give because you love him so much. Tell him, Lord, I worship you with this gift of my love, with this service that I do. That attitude will transform our offerings to God from a boring obligation into a joyous act of worship. So we have looked at our purifying preparation, our purifying worship, our purifying offerings, and now we can look at our purifying obedience. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Our purifying obedience. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Worship that does not change the worshiper is not true worship. True worship aligns our hearts with God's heart. So we want what God wants. Our lives should be changed because of our worship. 
Worship that simply is an exciting experience on Sunday but results in no obedience the rest of the week is not true worship. Nehemiah refers to Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 through 6 in these verses. It is a law that prohibited Moabites and Ammonites from entering the temple of God to worship. This prohibition is not for racial purity, but for religious purity. The backstory to this command from God is found in Numbers 22 to 24. Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel while they were still in the wilderness. But God didn't allow Balaam to pronounce the curses at all. Instead, God forced Balaam to pronounce blessings on God's people. However, the story doesn't end there, and that's what is important. Balaam later led the nation of Israel into idolatry and immorality by introducing the idols of the Moabites and the Ammonites to the people in Numbers 25 and in Numbers 31. That was the reason for the law. It was to keep the people away from the idolatrous and immoral practices of the nations around them. Don't bring those things in to the worship of God. The risen Christ, speaking to the church in Pergamum in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 2.14, says these important and instructive words. But I have a few things against you the angel said, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. The term foreigner, which is used in Nehemiah 13.3, was used back in Exodus 12, verse 38, to describe the mixed multitude of Gentiles who followed Yahweh and the Jews when they left Egypt. God welcomed those foreigners to join his people because they were ready to follow God, to obey him. The problem with these foreigners in Nehemiah and the problem with people in Pergamum that the angel was addressing was that they were not willing to follow God and instead were leading the people into idolatry and immorality under the guise of worshiping God. You see, my friends, there can be no compromise to our worship. We don't bring the world into our worship. If we want God's blessing on our lives, then we cannot compromise with the enemies of our faith. Samuel Johnson wrote, He that hopes to find peace by trusting God must obey him. Do you remember the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 13? He performed sacrifices to God, but he had disobeyed God at the same time. And God judged Saul for his disobedience because to obey is better than sacrifice. We can perform all the rituals we want, but if we disobey God, then our worship becomes meaningless. Worship on Sunday that does not change the worshiper on Monday is not really worship. 
Worship, true worship, purifies the worshiper. And that is why it is so important that we gather regularly for worship each and every week. It is the most important hour of the week for the believer. Our presence in gathered worship each week is a cleansing and purifying activity. We repeat the truths of God in song and word, and that reinforces his truths in our lives. We need gathered worship to stay on fire for God. There's a famous story about the evangelist D.L. Moody many years ago, who once met resistance when he was talking with a man about his need for membership in a local church, for being part of that local church. The man said that he didn't need the, the local church in order to worship God. He could worship God by himself anywhere at any time. He didn't need the church to do that. And that thought is, of course, not new today. It was around for a long time. Moody didn't say anything. Instead, he walked over to the fireplace and lifted a flaming hot coal with a pair of tongs. He set the red-hot coal on the hearth by itself away from the fire. Moody, still without saying a word, returned to his seat as the coal stopped glowing and eventually became black. The man turned to D.L. Moody and said, I see your point. Gathered worship should not be like a drug addict's fix each week. It must be more like a spiritual fire that ignites our souls. We need gathered worship to stay on fire for God. 